Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. Somewhere in almost every city, there is at least one wall or bridge or train covered with spray-painted words and images. Graffiti is almost expected as part of the urban landscape. For some, these pictures, tags, or throw-ups are signs of urban decay, and their creators, the graffiti artists, are criminals. For others, these are works of art created by important artists who are in touch with the changing dynamics of our urban culture. And indeed, some of these graffiti artists have gone from street alleys to the high-end galleries. Artists like Basquiat, Shepard Ferry, Banksy, Boxhead, and Saki are proving that street art is a major force in our culture today. I'm Kendall Phillips, and this episode of Pop Life is devoted to graffiti's role in shaping our popular culture. Here to help us examine the complex world of illegal and legal street art is Professor Caitlin Bruce. Dr. Bruce is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Pittsburgh and author of Painting Publics, Transnational Graffiti Scenes as Spaces of Encounter from Temple University Press. Caitlin, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, thrilled to have you because I think graffiti is one of those fascinating aspects of pop culture that is quite literally everywhere. You know, almost any street corner you walk down or, or any you know major thoroughfare, you'll see some example of graffiti. And yet sometimes we don't necessarily see its impact on pop culture broadly. So I mean, I start with that as a kind of broad question. From your perspective as a person who spent a lot of time studying graffiti, how do you see graffiti as having had a broad impact on pop culture in general? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that um, graffiti is in dialogue with pop culture and has been since the beginning. So, you know, arguably you could say that graffiti started when humans started um, communicating visually with cave paintings, but it's more contemporary origins can be found in New York and Philadelphia in the 70s and 60s, respectively. Um, and it's and in that context, right, it was youth, uh, largely in urban areas who were using it as like a form of expression. Um, and so, I mean, that was their form of culture was to um, share their observations about the world. And often they would borrow from elements of popular culture. So cartoons, um, comic books, um, music, culture, like all of that has always kind of been represented through graffiti. And then in terms of like graffiti's impact back, you know, if we look at the aesthetics of things like um, video games, advertising, and fa even high fashion, um, all of that sort of borrows from sometimes uh, acknowledging, sometimes not acknowledging uh, the history of graffiti culture. And I think in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, we've seen even more of that. So, I mean, there have been a lot of shows, um, like there was a Netflix show uh, about hip hop in uh, Washington Heights in the Bronx, and that, you know, sort of featured some of the story about graffiti as it was related to hip hop. You know, I think like, as you mentioned, figures like Banksy and Basquiat have been getting more uptake. Um, so it's been this like ongoing conversation for the last like, you know, about 60 years now. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I think for a lot of folks and maybe even sort of traditional researchers, when they looked at graffiti, they thought of it primarily in terms of sort of its, its illegality. It is a kind of form of, of resistance. Does graffiti, at least some graffiti, play that kind of oppositional role? Is it a kind of political critique or a form of resistance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, 
I think the act of writing someone's name in public space can be understood as a political act. It's a way of saying I'm here. It's a way of uh, articulating, you know, your impact and your memory in those spaces, particularly in contexts where sometimes some voices are given more of a platform than others. So, you know, as I mentioned, since a lot of the early writers and writers are what graffiti practitioners often call themselves, were youth, uh, youth in cities, often youth of color. Like these are folks who were seeing firsthand a lot of the inequality that structured the cities that they lived in. And so I think that the act of like making themselves known and present is incredibly important because it's a way of saying that they matter, their stories matter, and we should, you know, listen and pay attention to what they have to say. Um, and then in terms of like content too, you know, there's a lot of commentary that goes on uh, through the work. So, you know, some work might be, for instance, right now, there's a lot of work that's, you know, responding to the war um, between, you know, Ukraine and Russia. Um, likewise, there have been earlier works that have been commenting on, you know, issues of apartheid or issues of civil war. Um, so it's, you know, it's also long been kind of a tool in protest culture. But I guess I would say like sometimes, it, it kind of depends who you talk to too. So some writers might consider themselves to be political activists. Others might just be really committed to the more social aspects of the subculture uh, that are more interpersonal. In your book, Painting Publics, you talk a little bit about the need to also focus on kind of more accepted or I guess, quote unquote, legal uh, graffiti. And so I'm wondering if legal graffiti or street art that's sort of cultivated or accepted, even sometimes paid for uh, by cities or, or governments, if that serves a different function than the graffiti that someone is doing at midnight, you know, on their own or, or away from the law. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think like the distinction I'd make which rather than illegal or legal more often is like sanctioned and unsanctioned. And then it raises the question of like who, right? Like who has the authority to decide if something should be allowed. And some of that is legalistic. So it has to do with the laws of the city, but some of it is a little bit more informal. And that's something that I'm really interested in the book is what writer Lobby Raven from Chicago is called the gray areas of legality. So for instance, in a city like Pittsburgh, we've got a really strict city code that technically says that any kind of spray paint, no matter what the content, no matter whether the property owner or the city has said yes or no, can still be construed as graffiti and is still illegal. But in terms of practice, you know, a lot of times if property owners do give permission, if community members do um, appreciate and like the work and don't call it in, it's going to stay up. And so that's an example of like something that's sanctioned, even if it might not be legal, uh, and it still has value because it's communicating something about that place, about the people that have made it, et cetera. So, I mean, I think that um, unsanctioned work that happens, as you say, like in the dark of night, um, without any kind of dialogue between property owners, it's, it's performing a certain kind of function that's really valuable. Um, and the function of sanctioned work might be a little bit different, but both I think are still, uh, similar in that they're showing the importance of communication by a broader range of folks than say like a lot of the powerful voices that shape public spaces. So for instance, an analogy that a lot of writers use in interviews that I did was, you know, we get all this advertising in the places that we live in and nobody votes on it. Like we don't give permission to have billboards everywhere trying to sell us stuff 24 seven. But that's a form of public writing that's everywhere that's sort of imposed on us. So you could think about graffiti culture as a kind of response to that that's offering a different kind of communication that might not be so commercial. 
Yeah, I like that thinking about sanctioned versus unsanctioned and that key question of who, who ultimately gets to decide what constitutes sanctioned in our public spaces and, and not. And it's interesting to think of that in terms of sort of the dialogue about what public space is. But I'm sort of following that. You talk about uh, in the book, uh, Painting Publics, uh, this idea of graffiti is helping to create this kind of space of encounter and kind of crafting this urban encounter. And so I'm wondering if there are examples of where more sanctioned street art or graffiti has helped to really improve or, or cultivate a positive space of encounter within urban culture. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the concept of spaces for encounter is borrowed from folks, largely folks in like urban geography, critical geography, who have this concept that's related called spaces of encounter. Uh, so the minor modification in the book is say four because it's intentional. Um, so one example would be something like the graffiti festivals that I follow called Meeting of Styles. So these are permission festivals, meaning that the organizers have received permission from wall owners, whether they're public or private, um, to hold these events. And so that means the events are happening during the day. They're often every year. In many cities, they've gone on now for, for a number of years, some for over a decade, because the festival was founded in 99. Um, so that means that people that live in that area come to anticipate it, right? They know that this is a place they can go one time a year to meet writers from all over the world, to learn about what they're up to, to watch uh, live production, which is pretty cool because you can see the work in progress. Um, these are also really socially important events because it allows artists from across the world to connect to each other, to revisit each other. There's spaces for mentoring where um, writers from different generations can work together to kind of share insights about the history of the craft, but also its future um, and to provide opportunities, you know, for youth. And, you know, depending on the site where these festivals happen, they have other kinds of, you know, other kinds of impacts on the space. So one of the places where I lived for a while was Chicago. Um, and that's actually where I learned about meaning of styles. And so Chicago is a city that historically is extremely segregated. Um, and a lot of that is due to intentional practices like redlining, and um, restrictive covenants and, uh, and then more unofficial practices. So that means like to have a festival where you have people from like lots of different ethnicities, races, nationalities, ages, genders, all in one place, it's really significant because it's offering kind of this moment of plurality of, um, of you know, social encounters across differences that might not always happen. Um, you know, another thing I would also say is like these festivals are free. Uh, so that means that anyone who's in the neighborhood can come by and watch. Um, sometimes there's some opportunities for participation insofar as like some festivals have um, practice walls available, which means that <clears throat> anyone can kind of walk up and paint on them. A lot of times it's more assigned spots where artists are given, you know, a space and they get to work. But in any case, I think, you know, they, they create this really vibrant sense of possibility that we don't always experience on the day to day because, you know, often when you're moving through space, especially urban space, you're trying to get from point A to point B and that's about mm -hmm. it. And there are also a lot of forces um, that also mitigate, I think, against having such encounters. And I, I, you know, I sort of enumerated some of them earlier. So that's sort of one example that really stuck with me a lot um, when I started the project and continues to, to be resonant today. What was the motivation for the folks who started the meeting of style? Was that was that designed to create a kind of dialogue across multiple cultures or what what was the what was the original motivation for it? 
Yeah, so it was founded in a city called Wiesbaden in Germany, which is really close to Frankfurt. Um, so Frankfurt is a city that uh, US has an air bases in, which also means that that was already a city where there's a lot of international exchange, especially in terms of hip hop culture with a lot of like army kids, you know, growing up there and kind of doing cultural exchange. Um, and so it was like kind of a hot spot in terms of European graffiti culture. So in I think 99, I'll have to check the books. It's been a few years now. Uh, there was this festival that had gone on for a couple of years called the Wall Street Festival. And it was a permission festival um, at this building called the Schlachthof, which is uh, actually is a former slaughterhouse. It's a mm -hmm. warehouse space um, in downtown Wiesbaden near the train tracks, which is you know a great place because also trains are a really important part of uh, writing culture. So you know they had this festival. It was really great. People would come out you know from all over Europe to participate. But then the Schlachthof was about to be destroyed. Um, and so the meeting of styles was actually created in response to that impending destruction as a kind of way to make an argument about the value of the space, the value of hip hop culture, the value of graffiti, precisely as an opportunity to bring people together from across the world um, to have conversations through the medium of usually aerosol. Um, so that was the impetus for meeting of styles and then it went global so now it's all over the world and in the book i talk about a few sites but there are many of them so in the book i talk about mexico city um also Wiesbaden, and also perpignan france um and chicago and it also kind of ebbs and flows so like now it's actually not happening in france anymore but in Mexico, it's not just in Mexico City. Every year, it's in three different cities in Mexico. So it's kind of this evolving thing where artists can go all over the world and participate in it. But it, yeah, it started in Germany. It was a way to kind of argue against the destruction of a place that maybe urban officials didn't really know had a lot of value to some people, but really did. Um, and so they didn't stave off the total destruction of the slot off, but they did get some official support for the new iteration of the festival, which now kind of happens next to another train station, maybe like one stop down on the S-Bahn. Um, it's a really, it's a really cool site. It's like in an underpass and, you know, really beautiful vista. So very, very cool place to go to if you ever get the chance. Now, one of the things I thought was really fascinating about the book and, and some of your other work, I, I suppose as a person, I've been able to travel a little bit in the world. And so I'm aware that there's sort of graffiti in most major cities. Uh, but it was interesting to think about graffiti writers as having this kind of global conversation, like the, the degree of influence going back and forth and around and across borders. And I'm wondering, these festivals clearly do that. I'm assuming social media has also been a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so social media has really accelerated a lot of what was already happening. So I mean, one thing that's I find so cool about the history of graffiti and um, this is discussed really well in some earlier scholarship, like I really, Joe Austin has a great book called Taking the Train. So I highly recommend that to anyone who's like kind of getting into this research. He talks a lot about the way that youth um, communicated to each other. So like zines were really important as a medium for communication zines, um, copy, just photographs, like sending each other photographs through the mail uh, was really important. There were early magazines that were created. People would um, make VHS tapes <laughs> recording their work um, and then would share it. So this, this idea of like global sharing um, has really characterized the culture since the beginning. Like even, I think it was maybe in the early 80s, um, writers from New York went to Europe to paint in galleries, to um, 
perform in shows and some of them were painting for like famous musicians. So like the clash when the clash was touring in Europe in the eighties, I think Futura 2000 was painting for them. So that's always been the thing, but now with social media, I think it's a lot easier. Um, and that's also had some ramifications on the culture as well. Um, because there's kind of like this expectation of going global and there are parts of that that are, I think are really exciting and awesome. There may be some parts of that that some folks are a little bit concerned about in terms of how it might homogenize style or um, create expectations about, you know, being prolific or, I don't know, being recognized a certain way, like having followers on Instagram versus like deep conversations and physical space. So. The kinds of conversations that we have in general in pop, in pop culture about like the impact of social media on social and interpersonal life, those kind of happen also in um, in writing culture. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's also tied up in that is is that question of legitimacy. It seems to me yeah. maybe that as uh, graffiti writers become more uh, legitimated and officially sanctioned and then get pulled into, like you said, fashion and, and television and other sorts of media and certainly social media, and followers become revenue and it becomes a product, is there a danger that some of the earlier actual conversation or actual critique or actual politics that kind of motivated on the ground get lost in this, as you say, kind of homogenizing global product? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a, it's a tricky question. So on the one hand, like, I think that it's important that artists get to do whatever they need to do to, to, to be safe, um, to make a living if that's what they wish to do from their art. And also to really um, be able to kind of share the importance of this form of communication with the world. Cause I think it has a lot of value. It has a lot of lessons to teach us about how to, um, you know, learn from people, from spaces um, and to produce something generative. Um, but definitely in terms of um, institutionalization and uh, the sort of centripetal force of like, you know, capitalist culture of the fine art world, um, definitely some context, there's a risk of losing some context. And so one example I'll give is there's uh, at Art Basel um, in Miami, you know, there's this neighborhood in Miami called Wynwood and there is now a couple of graffiti sites in Wynwood. One of them is Wynwood Walls. There's also a, a museum of graffiti. But Wynwood Walls um, was founded by a real estate developer who also played a really large role in completely reshaping Soho in downtown New York. And there you have to pay a pretty steep entry fee to go into this gated area hmm. to see um, street art and graffiti and murals that you also can see, by the way, in like the surrounding neighborhood. <laughs> but, you know, they have plaques next to them that say it's like Wynwood certified and they're more famous artists. And so, so that like, that concerns me because there's not a lot of the story that we kind of talked about earlier about some of the social critique and political critique involved. And also there's not the part of the story about the need for accessible public spaces for everyone. Um, when you have that kind of situation. But at the same time, it's like also artists need to get paid. Um, they need to be compensated for their labor. So the the ultimate argument that I make in the book is that we need, you know, we kind of need both. Like we need public space um, where people can produce their work, uh, where it can be recognized as valuable, even if it's not for sale. 
but also we should recognize the aesthetic value of graffiti as something that's extremely uh, you know, impressive and uh, important. And so if artists wish to sell their work, I think they should have that option. And there's still some barriers there in terms of um, stigmatization, um, in terms of also kind of pathways to access opportunities. So I, I, we talked before we started recording about um, a trip I just did to France. That's an ecosystem where there's a lot more official recognition, but even so, um, some of the artists I talked about discussed how it's still difficult to kind of crack the code of some of the institutional language for art competitions for commissions because that's like really specialized stuff and if you don't have a certain kind of professional training then it's really hard to access um so yeah so those are some of the things that i'm thinking about and then in the most recent book that i'm wrapping up um i'm looking at state-sponsored graffiti in central mexico so this question of legitimization and institutional recognition is pretty central and kind of thinking through how over the long durée of about 20 years um, artists are navigating what institutional recognition means for how we define the value of graffiti but also how we create metrics for recognition and what that what that means in terms of their lives so it's an awesome question and there's not like really any one right answer to it no, it's such a complicated question because, as you say, you know, with, with sanctioning and uh, acceptance comes restrictions and, and often decontextualization. But I wonder if also there comes a level of fragility. So I'm thinking of something I know you wrote about uh, the Five Points uh, area in Long Island City uh, that had, a, a, I guess, a fairly robust graffiti center that then was kind of quickly taken away. Is that, is that an example, I guess, of the fragility of sanctions? Mm, yeah. So that, that was an interesting case because it was um, it was a space that was privately owned by a couple of, well, yeah, it was owned by Walkoff and family who are real estate developers. Um, Mears One took over as curator, I wanna say like in the late nineties. And yeah, it became this globally recognized, it was called it like quote unquote Mecca of graffiti. And it did, it played a huge role in generating tourism for that part of New York. Um, it was used as background in like hundreds of music videos and documentaries and all that. It was a site for school trips. So in terms of all these different metrics of value, educational, commercial, um, in terms of media recognition, et cetera, we could say that it was a space that had value, but it wasn't owned by the artists. Um, so when the Walkoffs decided to, that they were gonna tear down the place to build condominiums, a legal battle ensued and it was interesting because the legal battle was drawing on this law called the visual artist rights act and it's actually this um, language of moral rights which comes from europe um and it's about the stature and integrity of the art and so it was kind of complicated because you know like with a lot of graffiti work it's it's created in c2 meaning like in context in spaces and dialogue with those spaces and the other works of art so it's not like individual works on canvas in a white walled gallery where you can say like, this is the impact of this work in a discreet way. Um, it's always kind of like in conversation with other works. So that was really complicated. Um, and it was also like a lot of those works aren't titled. People don't come always knowing the name of the author, et cetera, et cetera. So it was kind of like an awkward fit, but ultimately the judge ended up deciding in favor of um, the curator and the other co-plaintiffs and uh, they got awarded a monetary settlement, which is which is great, but the space was still destroyed. And there hasn't been a sort of cognate space created in New York, which means that now 
the tri-state area doesn't really have a space of that size that serves that educational function, that social function, that aesthetic function. Um, so that's kind of the, yeah, the fragility question is real because I think ultimately it's about what, how we create and value and curate public spaces that are shared. Um, and so one of the ways I'm really interested in thinking about this is this idea of like infrastructure. So we think about infrastructure in terms of like bridges and tunnels, but we can also think about infrastructure as social in terms of relationships and physical spaces for encounter. Um, and so I think that Five Points was an example of a really important space of social infrastructure that was not maintained, even though the art was sort of retroactively recognized as being beautiful. And so that's the challenge. And I think especially in the US where the ideology of private property and individualism is so strong, it's really, really difficult, I think, to carve out language um, and also in co collective political investment in, in shared public spaces. So I'm curious, thinking about the sort of sanctioned, you know, street art, I guess, as 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 cities are investing in, and there does seem to be a kind of uptick in, in some cities of investment in public art for the very reasons you've cited of kind of creating space that fosters an urban culture and civic engagement. For you as, as a person who's seen an awful lot of, of this art and, and is an expert in the area, is there an example that for you is like a a, a great example of the possibility that can be opened up in urban space by this kind of street art? Yeah, um, I think that Five Points was a glimpse of that. Um, I think that we see different iterations of that all over the world. So one example, which is really cool, is in, in Colombia. Um, in Colombia, there was a, a really tragic incident in 2012 where a police officer killed a young writer who was just painting uh, at an underpass in Bogota. And there were a number of protests that followed. And ultimately, um, the writers and the family were able to secure some state investment in graffiti and street art within this sort of framework of democratic participation, wherein there are sort of neighborhood um, dialogue tables that can help city shape city policy and also uh, determine grant funding for projects. And so writers were invited to be part of those tables, I think at every table within every neighborhood throughout the country. Um, so that's extremely significant to have that kind of political representation. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's also still enduring you know, human rights abuses that are going on. So this isn't like a, a battle that's won by any means, but it is like a really interesting space of possibility. And so I did some field work out there in 2019 in, in Bogota, and um, there was a graffiti tour. It's called Bogota, Bogota Graffiti Tours, and it was like one of the most awesome tours I've ever been on, precisely because it was like showing all this deep contextual stuff. The way that and the way that street artists and graffiti artists were in dialogue with the space, with the history of the country. At that time, there was a national strike going on, so um, the tour guide was explaining how. The artwork was participating and commenting on the national strike um, and also the history of the city. So it showed, you know, to me how graffiti and street art can be this really generative educational medium for teaching people, both um, folks from an area and outside an area, about what's going on and some of the politics of like inclusion and exclusion. So that was a really exciting example. Another example I'll give that I learned about recently, which was like pretty cool from like my, you know, academic perspective was when I was in Paris, I learned that the, the Ministry of Culture in France commissioned a study 
2019 about the state of urban art. Nothing like that has happened in the U.S. Um, and it was it was a, it was funded. I think it was funded at the tune of like thirty thousand euro. Wow! Um, it included a team of researchers and street artists and programmers. Um, I think that there were like maybe four hundred people that were surveyed. Uh, so I mean, so there are like little moments of possibility kind of happening everywhere. Um, in Chicago, you know. There have been some exciting uh, examples of commission-based work kind of across the city. So there was this big walls project in the downtown in like 2016, the Chicago Cultural Center had this really great show called Paint, Sticker, Paste. I think it was in 2014. And it was like the first time an institution like that had um, hosted um, an event on graffiti and street art. And we could sort of name other examples. Like I think the MOCA in Los Angeles, mm. maybe it was in 2010, there was a huge show. So yeah, so there have been like these benchmarks of um, of recognition, but I think for me, the important thing is like to hold on to all aspects of the culture. And so that means that for me, it's important to have official opportunities, but also maintain the thread that's there about mentoring and education between generations that for me, that's important in terms of like, you know, youth and elder generations. Um, and then this question of context and history and kind of keeping that alive too. So I think that there's kind of awesome things happening all over the world. There's also been like a total boom in scholarship about graffiti and street art over the last 15 years. And that's not unrelated to some of the dynamics that we talked about earlier in terms of social media, in terms of like globalization, et cetera. So there's a lot of spaces of hope for sure. Well, you have certainly given us a wonderful survey into the world of graffiti. And, and I think all of us will be walking down the streets looking a little more intently at the things tagged around our neighborhood. Uh, and as regular listeners of Pop Life know, uh, in addition to learning about the expertise of our amazing guests, we like to dig into their pop culture loves and likes. And Caitlin, we begin that with a silly little game we call the Fast Five. So Caitlin, I'm going to ask you five either or questions and you'll follow your heart and choose the best option, even if it's a, a tough question. Let's try uh, question number one. Which would you be happier to find, a Basquiat in your basement or a Banksy in your backyard? Oh, definitely a Basquiat in the basement. I think that's a good choice because the Banksy might destroy itself. One never knows. Uh, so question number two for you, Caitlin. For you, heaven will be filled with A, romping playful puppies, or B, romping bouncing bunnies? Oh, my God. That's impossible. And, uh, I, and I asked this question because I know a little bit about Caitlin, so I know this is going to be a tough question. Uh, oh, my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> This is a really deep question. <laughs> Pop uh, life is a tough life. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, also, yeah, we had to say farewell to our, our elder bun this year, um, but we currently have two dogs. Um, I guess I'll say dogs, but I feel like evil. I don't know. You've been such a great guest. We're going to give you both. I promise. No worries. When you get there, there'll be bunnies and puppies uh, aplenty. Question number three for you. I know you were recently returned from Paris, as we talked about. For you, which is the more quintessential Paris experience? Coffee on the Champs-Élysées or the view from the Eiffel Tower? Oh, um, I'm a little afraid of heights, honestly, so probably coffee. We're going to go with the coffee. I think it's always a good choice. Question number four. If you could go on a midnight tagging run with one legendary graffiti writer, would it be Taki183, who covered the streets of Manhattan in the 1960s, or Lady Pink, who tagged New York City subway cars in the 1980s? Oh, you read my mind. Definitely Lady Pink. <laughs> <laughs> 
a good choice. So finally, our final question, question number five for you, Caitlin. You have a chance to go on tour with one musical act. Would it be Janelle Monet or Phoebe Bridgers? Oh, Janelle Monet. Perfectly great choice. You've done a great job on the Fast Five. So, Caitlin Bruce, what are you watching or listening to? What is in your pop culture radar these days? Um, so, in terms of depressing things, um, I've been watching Severance. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's real bleak, but it's very good. And then in terms of happy things, uh, in preparation for the Paris trip, I was watching this Netflix show called um, Troll or Standing Up, which is about uh, stand-up comics in Paris. Highly recommend. Brilliant. So two great suggestions. Caitlin Bruce, you have been an amazing guest. You've definitely given us a valuable perspective on the streets that we walk around and we're very appreciative of you joining us on this episode of Pop Life. And to our listeners, I'll say if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us on social media. We are at Pop Life, W-A-E-R, on both Twitter and Instagram. And remember, next time you throw up your pop culture tag, be sure to add Pop Life forever. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.